In the book of Genesis in the Bible, the story of creation tells us that on the third day, God created plants. Well, he didn't just put a couple trees out in the woods or flowers by the house or a stalk of corn out in the field. God designed plants with the same amazing way that he designed us. We all know that shoots go up and roots go down and it's necessary for a plant to decide. But why does that happen? Well, God created things inside plants. We learned it in high school sciences, geotropism and gravity. But there's a substance, statoliths, that are in the roots of plants that cause the roots to know to follow the gravity down to search for water, to search for nutrients and things that plant needs to live. In the same way, we know that plants, house plants especially, like to bend towards open windows and light. They all need sunlight to produce the food and energy that they need. Well, there's a hormone in plants called auxins, and auxins are in the cells, causing cells close to the light not to expand, while the cells on the other side of the light do expand, causing that plant to sort of tilt and grow towards the light. It's an amazing creation of God. Well, good morning. Great to see you this morning. You know, I, I wanted to just make sure, kind of review this every once in a while, I take it for granted. Some of you really uh, make use of this, but uh, if you have a smartphone, a smartphone today and um, you bring it to worship, um, we actually put uh, the service notes, the sermon notes, announcements on the, uh, we utilize the Uversion app. So if you have that app on your phone, the brown, so mine says Holy Bible, the brown app, it's the version app, it's the, probably the most popular Bible app out there. But all you do is you just click on it, and then you can go over here to uh, more, and you can click events, and uh, because it has you, it knows where your location is, probably most of you had you know, GPS on, it, um, it will automatically sense that you're here, and this is an event that's happening right now. And uh, pops up Napoleon Church of the Nazarene. It's live. If you click on that, um, sermon notes are there. Scripture references are there. Um, announcements are on down later on the page. And um, just an easy way to uh, follow along during service. But also if you want to when you leave. I believe there's somewhere you can push save on this. Yeah, there's a little at the bottom of it. You just click the check mark that's saved. And you can go back and reference that. So it's just a, a way for us uh, to uh, help you to be able to follow along with us. And sometimes you're like, I didn't, you were going fast here, which probably is not what you say about me mostly, but uh, um, you're moving through that quick. And uh, man, I'd like to, so there you go. Just wanted to remind you that that's there and uh, you can use that. And uh, you know, I guess if you want a Facebook during church, no one's going to know now, right? And you can do it. But um, so, yeah, don't feel bad now if you have your phone out. What's, what's the person down the road thinking? Like, I'm Facebooking during church. No, you're looking at the Uversion app. You're following along. So it's great to see you this morning. We want to start a, a new series this month called Rooted. Uh, and the tag to that is Foundations of a Christ Follower. And um, I'm excited about this series just because I think it takes us 
back to some of those foundational principles that, that we need to know about what is it to be a Christian? What, what, what is a Christian? And how can I be a Christian? And, and just some foundational things I think it's great for us to think about again and allow the Holy Spirit to uh, just continue to fill our minds and, and deepen our understanding and then work in our heart. Uh, through what his word says about what it is to be rooted and grounded in Christ Jesus. You know, most of us remember Hurricane Katrina. You remember when it ripped through uh, New Orleans and the Gulf Coast? And I mean, just bringing flooding and gale force winds, and it just devastated that whole region. I'm, probably even some of you, I think I've talked to a few of you that probably went down there to help with uh, disaster relief. Um, but one thing that was kind of born out of that whole storm was that there was surprise um, by people who went in to redevelop and, and <clears throat> rehab that whole area. There was surprise that a lot of the oak trees in New Orleans had survived, had survived that hurricane. I mean, you're talking about strong winds and flooding that erodes the soil, but yet trees, those oak trees in New Orleans, had been able to survive that. I mean, if you think about what happened, it was not only just this wind that was, straight, that was just coming in and, and, and with such force and power, but also they say in a hurricane that... Um, the, the, the times with a tree uh, or the wind will come and then it will go. But in that coming and going, there's an acceleration that happens. That the wind, uh, when it stops and then picks back up, just that initial acceleration, it, I mean, it can create devastating, devastating things. And trees in particular uh, are particularly vulnerable to that. They talk about in a hurricane just the air's throw weight, its mass, and how it, it just literally can lean so hard on something. They would also talk about in, in, a, in a situation like that, that often in that calm, in the storm, that the tree would actually get to be, because of the winds, and then it calms down, it would sway back and forth. And that can, and alone, it can be in the calm when nothing's blowing, that all of a sudden a tree is compromised and, and it just falls over. And obviously, as they studied these oak trees more and more, they realized that at the heart of what allowed these trees to survive Hurricane Katrina was its root system. Its root system. I'm not telling you anything new, right? You've walked through this in sixth grade science class, and you know, you understand when you see that picture. You, you know where I'm going with this. But I would remind you that roots, that that those, that those things that you do not see underneath are what allow for um, the vibrant plants and trees that we have. In fact, um, a root's major functions are this. They take and absorb the water and the inorganic nutrients. They anchor the plant body to the ground and support it. They store food and nutrients and they also are responsible for the vegetative reproduction and competition with other plants. 
Roots are absolutely essential if you are going to have a beautiful tree in your yard or a fruitful plant or a beautiful plant in, in, in your landscape. The root system is absolutely essential to that coming into place. In fact, as you study the root system, it's, it's often that the roots go way well beyond the area of the tree, like what they would call the drip line of the tree. You see the tree, its roots are probably one to three, sometimes even four to seven times farther away from where that tree sets. I, I, I experienced that last summer when we were redoing our backyard and digging up stuff and taking stuff out and then wanting to go in and, and you know, um, uh, put in a, like a, a stone paver patio and it's not a big deal, right? Go six inches into the ground and I'm, I'm this far away. Man, I am telling you that tree that stood over there, I, I wrestled with roots 10 to 20 feet away from that tree but it just reminded me when I looked at that tree just how, how powerful, majestic it looks and how vibrant it's been and how it's withstood years and decades of storms and drought and, and everything and I thought, you know, it's exactly, it's exactly because of this root system. Here I am taking away some of its life by cutting up those roots. Roots are essential. In fact, we could say it this way. Deep roots equal strong trees. Deep roots produce a stable, fruitful, life-giving tree. And for me, as I start this series, I want to remind you of what the psalmist said. In fact, it's in the first psalm. The first psalm, if you were to open the book, you would begin by reading this. The first word of the psalms is what? Blessed. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever it does prospers. And so the Bible introduces to us this imagery of tree, of roots. In fact, it's in Colossians chapter 2 where we would read, So then, just as you have received Christ, Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. It gives us this imagery of being rooted. It's this idea that in Christ our lives can sink deep down in and the storms of life, the droughts of life, the whatever of life that would threaten uh, our lives, they can be persevered through. They can prosper. It can, it, our lives can manifest this ability to produce fruit regardless because of a deep, vibrant healthy root system and that comes from a life that's in Jesus Christ and so for me just this this month I just want to put this sentence in front of you probably every every week but it's simply this rooted in Christ gives me the stability the confidence and the power to be an effective Christ follower 
to be an effective Christ follower. It's amazing now that as I, uh, you know, follow uh, the evangelical Christian uh, Christian world and and listen to guys who have far more uh, influence and um, exposure, that we are now having to change our our phraseology from Christian to Christ follower. Um, Because Christian has meant so little now in our culture. Um, 80%, 90% of our country, or north of 80% claim to be Christian, right? But yet, um, the evidences of that are nowhere to be seen. We all know that. And so, uh, most guys are using this phrase, Christ follower now. You know what? I think it is so appropriate. It probably should have always been Christ follower, because as I'm thinking about what can I talk about that, that are the foundational things, they're the root things of what it is to be a believer, to follow after Jesus, I would start immediately in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24. I think it's something that all of us, this, this verse needs to sit deep within our hearts. When it says, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Those those words at the end of that verse are so crucial to our understanding. It is the mindset of a disciple is to know and understand that my life, my my faith is, is all wrapped up in my following after Jesus Christ. It's amazing I have to say these things, but in a, in a Christian culture where for years we've sold people on, if you'll just say a prayer, if you'll just say a prayer, I've watched it, I've watched it, I've been amazed as I've went with people um, and, and uh, as they've talked to somebody that they never have even met, they've never even met and they'll start talking to them and, and they'll try and they're intentionally trying to get them to, uh, into a faith conversation. And, and uh, I've watched them as they, as they would bring it around to, you know, you're a sinner and Jesus is the Savior. And okay, if you'll just say this prayer with me. And they get them to say a prayer and literally walk away five minutes later. Never see that person again, but they've given this person this whole confidence that now that you've said that prayer, you, you, are, you have heaven and you're assured of heaven. This whole mindset, okay, you're looking at me a little strange, aren't you? Because you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I would remind you that Jesus never invites people to say a prayer. Ooh. Jesus invites people to follow him. You see, there is absolutely a prayer of confession and repentance and faith. Absolutely. But the mindset of a disciple, a mindset of what it means to be rooted in Christ and grounded in Christ is initially, it's the idea of what Jesus said, if you're going to follow after me, count the cost. Understand what this means. It literally means, okay, this is my life and Jesus is calling me to something completely different. He is going to absolutely turn my life upside down. I know when I say those words, people are like, but I kind of like my life. I'm kind of comfortable with that. I'm telling you, what Jesus calls us to is a passionate pursuit of following after, following after him. 
And that is foundational to if you and I want to be rooted in Jesus Christ. It's having that mindset of what this all entails. Not that I said a prayer when I was seven years old and all of a sudden, because I said that prayer, eternity is mine. Scriptures do not teach that. The scriptures teach that you do need to say a prayer of confession and, and repent of your sins and, and absolutely, but the scriptures are teaching us something that's broader and deeper and it, what makes sense. It invites us to a following after Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And so I would start right there. What does it mean to be rooted in Christ? It, is, it starts with the mindset of following after him. If you're looking for a good resource, if you're, if you're for the first time I'm saying words that you're like, Chip, I, this is new to me, or I always, uh, I, I, uh, I would recommend that you can go on Google, you can go on Amazon, and, and uh, uh, there's a book called Follow Me, Follow Me by David Platt. And all you need to remember is follow me. If you Google follow me into, into your computer, it'll come up immediately. And you can spend some time understanding what I'm explaining to you right now, or just introducing you to right now. But the idea, if I want to be rooted in Jesus Christ, I want to be stable in Christ. I want to be able to kind of person that when the storms of life blow and the winds and the rain comes, that, that I maintain stability. I want to be the kind of person that has a life that just as a tree with deep roots grows up and it's life-giving and it gives out, maybe it's a fruit tree, it gives out fruit or it's it just life-giving I want my life to look like that and I know that it that it requires that the root system is the key to all this what does that mean well it starts with embracing the mindset that being a Christian is being a Christ follower it is a complete commitment of myself to following after Jesus Christ and so this morning, I want to just sit on, a, on an idea today on, on what that entails. Um, so if we begin to read the Gospels, start in Matthew, first book, that's an easy one. We realize Jesus is going to come. He's, he's uh, in Matthew, he's talking about how he's going to be the king of the Jews. And, and uh, we read that he's born in Bethlehem. And in Matthew specifically, we read that he flees to Egypt. And then he settles down in Nazareth. And um, uh, he is a, he's a Nazarene, right? That's why we call ourselves the Church of the Nazarene. But um, uh, we would read that as, as there's these years of no, nothing recorded about Jesus, that in the gospel story, we're introduced first to this man named John, John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, we would read quickly that John is an influential person in this whole story of Jesus. He's called the forerunner to the gospel. He's called the forerunner to the Messiah. Uh, Jesus, or John, who Jesus, who was the way, the truth, and the life, knew everything. Jesus said there has been no greater man that ever lived than John the Baptist. So if you're gunning for that position, it's already taken. All right? It's already, it's already gone. John, John already claimed that spot. 
He said, this is the greatest guy, and he's the guy who's coming before me. He's preparing the way. He's a voice in the wilderness, this wilderness of, of religiosity and lostness that this, the whole culture had. John starts first with this piercing call. And listen to what John's words were when we're introduced to John. We read this. In, the days, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Then if you keep reading in Matthew, Jesus comes on the scene and John baptizes him in the Jordan River. And remember the spirit uh, um, sends like a dove and the father speaks from heaven. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And here we go with Jesus' ministry. And you quickly read in chapter four as Jesus is beginning his own ministry. Listen to Jesus' words. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. And what did he preach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent. Repent. You remember the whole story we celebrated this last month. Jesus is crucified. He's dead. He's buried. He rises again. And you remember that he promises when he ascends to heaven that he would send the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father, of all God's promises, the promise of the Father. It's the big deal. It's the hope that all of us have more than anything. The greatest promise God could ever give us is going to come into our hearts through the power of his Holy Spirit, the person of his Holy Spirit. He does that at the day of Pentecost when the church begins, right? And out of that spillover, they come out of that room and they've experienced this uh, phenomenal uh, manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Peter, who now has become the leader of the, of the church, preaches the first sermon ever preached. And I hope for my sake that it was at least 40 minutes. I know Paul preached long because he put people to sleep. And like one guy fell out of a window because he preached so long he fell asleep, right? So hey, I'm in good company. But Peter starts to preach and he begins to say, hey, this Jesus that whom you've crucified, he's risen and this is what's going on. And what does Peter say in the first sermon when they begin to respond? Well, what does this mean to us? Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Repent. You would read in the next chapter this theme of this early preaching of the early church. Acts 3 and 19 would say, Repent and turn to God so that your sins might be wiped out, so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Fast forward through the book of Acts as you've seen Peter and the early church, and then it kind of shifts in chapter. Um, 13, it seems like, 12 or 13, to Paul. Paul has been called out, road to Damascus, new apostle, um, and probably the most influential person in the early church. Paul is doing this stuff, and guess what Paul is saying? Chapter 26, first to those in the Damascus, and then to G G those in Jerusalem and all of Judea and to the Gentiles. I preach that they should what? Repent. Okay, I hope I've introduced you to the fact that John's saying repent, Jesus is saying repent, Peter's saying repent, Paul's saying repent. It's not a word that we, we it goes down very well. 
And not often do you hear a guy stand up there and talk about the word repent. And yet it is central to our understanding of what it means to be rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, just from church history, uh, most of us are familiar with Martin Luther, correct? The Protestant Reformation and how um, God uh, used Martin Luther to... uh, to bring the church or, or revive the church, whatever you want to call it. I'm not sure what was going on before then. It was very, very sparse. But Luther is used by God to call people, to call the church to authentic Christian behavior and living and understanding and practice and faith. And so you remember he, he went that day and he nailed those 95 theses, Right? You remember he nailed him to that wall. Well, guess what? The first one of those 95 statements says this. What does Luther start with? He starts with this. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ in saying what? Repent. Meant the whole life of the faithful to be an act of repentance. (laughs) And so what I'm talking to you about this morning is something that probably I have not spoken enough about but it is central to our understanding about what it means to be rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ. You know, Luther was so disturbed by how the church, the Catholic church, had been selling indulgences, encouraging people to pay for their forgiveness. And he said, listen, the only way to forgiveness is not by paying some indulgence, but the way to forgiveness is by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. You're familiar with the word repent, right? The word turn from, turn to, 180 is kind of the idea. I'm reminded of the TV show uh, um, Kitchen Nightmares. You you recognize that show, Gordon Ramsay? Uh, Gordon Ramsay's kind of a colorful character, I realize that, and some of you are like, why are you referencing that guy? Have you heard his language? Yes, I I, I know what you're talking about. But he's a chef, right? He's had these these shows, and basically this this TV show is, restaurants are typically on the verge of closing, they're in desperate need of help, and, and um, what's interesting, a lot of times the restaurants look great from the outside. Time and money has been spent, the right location, creating a welcoming atmosphere. But in every episode, it comes down to one thing. The food stinks. It's a restaurant. It doesn't matter how good the environment is or how great the location is, how convenient it is. At the end of the day, if your food is nasty, you're going to struggle, Right? And so he, he goes through, and sometimes it's the painfully entertaining parts of the show, is how he tries over and over to get the restaurant workers to realize that they're in a crisis situation, and it comes down to their food. Now, the owners typically have been awakened to the fact that the bottom line is, is bad. Um, but what they need is just brutal honesty. And normally, you know this, right? Gordon Ramsay is, is brutal. He is a straight shooter. Normally, he orders food off the menu. You've seen the show. And then he just absolutely explains how terrible it is. You know, the restaurant owners are in denial about the quality of the food often because they are distracted by everything else going on. They're managing food overs, orders, overseeing wait staff, 
stepping out of the kitchen to shake hands with customers, basically anything but actually making good food. And so when I talk about the idea of repentance, it's like James McDonald's would say, sometimes you have to hear the thing that you didn't want to hear in order to get to the place you've always wanted to be. Sometimes you have to hear the thing that you didn't want to hear to get to the place that you've always wanted to be. And this is something we don't like to hear. If you're like me, you hear the word repent, you kind of get this. I'm going to be honest. It's a natural, you know, but Jesus came to save the world from itself and to save us from ourselves. And that's why the word repentance is always connected in a positive light in the phraseology of the good news of the gospel. Repent and believe the good news. It's Abraham Joshua Herschel would say this, repentance is an absolute spiritual decision made in truthfulness. Its motivations are remorse for the past and responsibility for the future. I love Dallas Willard. If you want to ask me or if you want to buy me a book, um, that sounded kind of weird. I didn't mean to say that. But if you find a book somewhere, a used book, or you're in a used bookstore, and you, uh, one of my favorite absolute authors is D- Dallas Willard. And Dallas Willard in The Divine Conspiracy wrote um, about growing up without electricity. And he wrote about life was governed by wood, heat, kerosene lamps, kerosene lamps and washing hands by, claws by hands. But he remembers that when electricity came to town, and he remembers and he would say this, that we had to repent. We had to change our minds about how life would be done. We had to believe and trust that a switch would now turn on a light, a furnace would now heat their house, and a machine could wash their clothes. He said not everyone accepted this newfound power. No, some resign themselves to continue to live their ways of life. He says, we're most familiar with Amish communities who have never repented of candlelight. Indeed, when power arrived in the town, the message was, repent, for electricity is at hand. It takes a changing of mind, a changing of paradigm about life to accept a new way. And this is what John the Baptist, Jesus, Peter mean in the New Testament when they say repent. They mean a new power is at hand. A new power is available. And your thoughts about God, self, heaven, hell, purpose, meaning, and life all will have to change in order to realize the kingdom. And that is what the call of repentance is in the New Testament. Are you willing to embrace, turn to, adopt, change your mind, change your will, change your lifestyle in order to follow after this truth, which is Jesus Christ? Are you willing to repent of all that you've thought, all that you've placed your trust in, all that you've... uh, relied on and depended on all of those things are you willing to say I am going to turn and trust now only in Jesus and his ways his word his truth and am I going to allow myself to follow after that amen I'm not telling anything new this morning right we need to be reminded of this 
I would just quickly remind you that repentance is, it's a change of mind. It's a change of mind. Again, Willard would say, or there was a study done by the University of Toronto and, and James Madison. And they did a study, as they do often, about things that we already instinctually know, but they have to prove it um, in a science way. And it's called Cognitive Sophistication Does Not Attenuate the Bias Blind Spot. I will not say that again for you. And it concluded this, that we often cut ourselves more slack than we give to others. We do this all the time. When considering the irrational choices of a stranger, we focus on how they behaved. We see their biases from the outside and it allows us just to see their errors. However, when assessing our own bad choices, we tend to engage in an elaborate introspection. We, we study our motivations and we search for relevant reasons. Why do I keep doing that? And um, we lament our mistakes to therapists and we ruminate on the beliefs that have led us astray. As example, if, if, we're, if we drive crazy through traffic, it's because we have an important meeting, or at least that's what I tell myself. And that we don't often do that and so forth, Right? I gotta, I, this is important. I don't really drive like this, and we cut ourselves all sorts of slack. But if someone else cuts us off in traffic, there's one simple, simple observative, observable explanation. That guy's a jerk. And the conclusion is our biased blind spots are largely unconscious, which means they remain invisible to self-analysis, and interestingly enough, they are resistant to intelligence. In other words, being smarter won't add, won't help you to see your own junk. As a matter of fact, the study proves that more intelligence may add to the problem. And you see, Jesus calls us to a repentance that is a rethinking and the only hope that any of us have, and especially maybe those that are more intelligent among us is that we need the light of the Holy Spirit to shine into our life, to show us, to reveal to us just how lost and broken and self-centered self and twisted we are. That's our only hope because often we never have an adequate aware, self-awareness. And repentance starts with the light bulb coming on, or as Dallas Willard would say, repentance is to rethink your thinking so as to change the way you've been thinking and act, acting. We repent in light of the gospel of Jesus. Repentance brings a kind of self-awareness that goes farther than just we're all sinners and we're all moral failures it shines a spotlight on the soul corruption that manifests itself in our lives that brings about moral failures broken relationships pride and shame and self-hatred and self-centeredness repentance in this turning and the idea in scripture is a change of mind i am willing to allow the way that i think to be changed but it goes beyond that. It is not only just a change of mind, it's a redirection of the will. This is one of my favorite quotes, C.S. Lewis, another guy I love to read. He says this, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. And we've talked about this from this platform any number of times. 
about the call of Jesus is a call to surrender. And the call to repentance is not only to, okay, I'm willing to see things from your perspective. I'm willing to open my heart and mind to the word and follow after and allow it to orient the way I think and view the world and view myself. But I am now willing to see what you're saying to me about who I am and what needs to happen in my life. And I am now willing to embrace that change. I'm willing to exercise my will. The scriptures talk about, in repentance, it talks about bringing fruit, bringing forth fruit that is repentance. It's the idea that repentance is not simply, I'm sorry. That's a start. But repentance is, I'm sorry, I grieve. Godly sorrow works repentance. But repentance is, now what do I need to do to turn from and turn to? Are you with me today? I feel like this is really like, and I'm like really nervous that some of you are like, dude, that guy, stop. Okay. The third thing is repentance is a life-changing lifestyle. That's just a continuation of two. And this is where I just want to finish. You know, John, the gospel of John was written. John chapter 20, verse 31. John said, I wrote this book that you might know who Jesus is and that you might believe in his name. But later on, John writes some more books. In fact, he writes these three epistles, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And again, in John chapter, 1 John chapter 5 and 13, he writes these words. I have written this epistle to Christians, but I have written this so that you might know that you have eternal life. John was written for one, first John was written for one purpose. Christians who wanted to have security in their faith. They needed assurance. Like 39 times he uses the word no. No, 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 no. So he wrote this book, not N-O, K-N-O-W. Not with, yeah. No, I've written this word that you might know that you have eternal life. I got a section here I wanted to talk about eternal life, but I'm going to skip it, okay? And so as he writes the book of 1 John, he writes with this idea that I have believers who have embraced Jesus Christ, but they want to have assurance in their lives. And what is appropriate in this discussion of repentance is where John lands in the third chapter, I should have included the first three verses when he talks about how great the Father's love has been lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And um, uh, when, we appear, when he appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. And then he moves into this discussion right here. He said, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he, make, he might take away our sins. In him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. And this is, to me, one of the key phrases of our whole our whole contemporary 
uh, evangelical culture right now. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. When's the last time you heard that read? We have grown up in a culture where we have made light of our sinful behavior. And we've bought so often into the idea that we just sin every day in word, thought, and deed. It's just who we are, we're just sinners. It's gonna get quiet, I know it is. You can't read 1 John. Can't let this. This is just one. I could go on. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. In fact, Paul would later on say that we are no longer slaves to sin. And in this idea of repentance, what am I turning from? What am I turning to? The key thing is sin. Sin is what brought Jesus to the cross. Sin is that active rebellion against the Father. And that's what Jesus laid out his life so that we might be forgiven of that. And this life of being rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ absolutely calls us to confront this issue of sinful behavior in our life. Amen? Amen. I can't tell you, that's just as plain as it's going to get. He that is in Christ cannot go on sinning. In fact, it's impossible for someone who has the Christ in them to continue to live a sinful lifestyle. And see what God calls us to and what it means to be rooted deep and to what it is to, to be rooted in Christ, it first of all calls me to repent, to repent of who I am in the fallen condition. It calls me to turn from that, to see that it destroyed me, that it caused chaos in my life, that it brought about brokenness. It bound me, it enslaved me. I could never be who I was called to be because I was bound by sin. And it calls me to turn from any kind of that uh, thinking or relying on any kind of that behavior and turning to this new life in Jesus Christ, who next week we'll talk about through the power of his Holy Spirit gives us the ability to not be enslaved to sin. <laughs> now, it helps to understand Greek language. It helps to understand the way the present tense, continuing action, the, the different verbs and tenses and moods. And what John is saying in, first, in the first chapter, he's talked about he that says he has no sins, a liar. Now, you remember he's talking to, to Gnostics, right? People who had this whole idea. That, that's specifically in this book. He's, really, he's always after Gnostics who would say they've reached a certain level where they don't ever sin. Or they never have sinned. He's like, you, come on. And he actually starts chapter two by saying, if any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. But 
He is calling us to a whole new life where sinful behavior is not the habitual pattern of our lives. First John, in the way he wrote this, and he wrote it very well, the Spirit of God wrote it very carefully. This is not to say that all of a sudden I am going to live, Chip Bullock's going to live without committing a sin. How many of you believe that? <laughs> no, nobody. No. Paul would talk about the, the war of the flesh and the spirit, right? And we, we understand that until we see him, it's only when we see him that we will complete, be completely like him. So this growth in grace is the process of a lifetime, which we're going to talk about in week three. But repenting is this whole dynamic where I turn and sin no longer has dominion in my life. Not perfection. Ask my wife. <laughs> but I will tell you, from when I have started walking to Jesus until this present day, sin does not have a hold on me. Amen. And I am not captive and enslaved and bound to the sinful behaviors that I was. He, he breaks that power, and as I continually walk with him, he is absolutely giving me the ability that sin does not have mastery over me. Maybe my lack of prayerlessness, my lack of faith, my lack of something causes me in a moment to act in a way that is sinful. Lord, I am sorry, forgive me, but you know what? If I kick the dog on Monday, and then I kick the dog on Tuesday, and then I kick the dog on Wednesday, and I kick the dog on Thursday, and I can say every night, Lord, I'm sorry, I don't wanna, I, I don't wanna kick the dog, but I keep kicking the dog. That's not what this is. This is there comes a point where I stop kicking the dog. I don't kick the dog, okay? You guys do know I have a dog, I don't kick it. But I am using that as an illustration. And this is what we're willing to repent of. <laughs> and I would say it like this, uh, quickly. Repentance begins with the knowledge of sin. It produces a sorrow for sin. It leads to a confession of sin. It causes a breaking away from sin. And it activates a following of Jesus. That's what this does. That's what he calls us to repent for the kingdom of God is hand. There is a change of mind. Oh, this is the truth. Okay, I'm willing to follow it. I change my mind. I don't believe the systems, the patterns, the thinking of this world, the philosophies of this world. I am changing my mind to embrace that Jesus is truth, way, and life. The kingdom's here. But I see that in that kingdom, he calls me to a life that is new, that is free, that is empowered by his Holy Spirit, and now I can live not being dominated by sinful behaviors in my life. And it's life-changing. But I want to remind you of this as we go. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? God has been all those things and more. Do you not realize that God's kindness is intended to do what? To lead us to repentance. You tell me I'm bad, I get it, I already knew that. You can keep piling on me and telling me I need to change, not going to. Didn't work, doesn't happen. 
You know what broke my heart? What breaks our hearts? Is the kindness of Jesus Christ. The mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. It says, I see who you are. I know what you deserve. But I'm willing to forgive you anyway. And in that dynamic, all of a sudden, I don't want this life anymore. I want to turn to, from and turn to because of the love and the grace and the mercy of God. Grace changes my disposition towards sin. Repentance makes that disposition a reality. And so, I want to be rooted in Christ. What have I done with sin in my life? Is it holding power over me? I'm never going to get settled. I'm never going to get established. I'm never going to get grounded if I can't settle this whole idea of my, I want to be in control. I want my will, not your will. Jesus is praying, not my will. But Got it? And yet we see that what brings about repentance is a, a, a realization of how much God offers to us, how much forgiveness and pardon We're motivated by his grace. And that's what leads us to repentance. Do you need to repent today? I would say that as Luther said, that all of our lives there is an ongoing repentance. John Wesley would have talked about repentance in believers. There's always a sense where, Lord, I'm like, Lord, help me in this area and grow my faith here. And I, I'm sorry, I, I, you know, there is that sense of ongoing repentance. But yet, especially in this matter of, of sin, of the dominion of sin, if you're ever going to be rooted in Christ, you must be willing to repent of your sin and turn from it and to God. And the thing that will always, always, always make that possible is the kindness of a loving Savior. Father, Lord, as we think about these things, I'm sure I've said some new things to people maybe. I I don't know. But Lord, your word is so powerful and it wants to give us the life that you always intended for us to have. And that life absolutely includes a freedom from the power, the slavery of sin. Paul experienced it. The apostles experienced it. The saints through the ages have experienced it. I have, I have personally been able to see people who walked free from the power of sin. They weren't perfect, and they didn't go without sin, but it did not have mastery over their life. They were not captivated to it. They were not in a habitual practice It's just sin. So Lord, apply this in every area of our life, however your Holy Spirit does. But as I said at the beginning, repentance is always in connection to the gospel, good news. Why wouldn't we want to turn from that which binds and destroys us? And we see through the goodness of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit that we are now able to walk new lives free from the power of sin. You said, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. And this is what the kingdom is. Free people, empowered people, to live the lives that glorify you. Make this so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great day.